This episode of Irish Mythology Podcast is sponsored by McCaffrey Crafts, specialising in authentic walking sticks and shillelaghs handcrafted in County Kerry from Blackthorn that grows out of Irish soil. Find them online at McCaffreyCrafts.com. That's M-C-C-A-F-F-R-E-Y-C-R-A-F-T-S dot com. Eve and welcome to the first and possibly only episode of the Irish Mythology Podcast to come with an explicit content warning. I'm Marcus O'Hishkin. Yes, this is a story that has been subject to censorship, claims of an untranslatable passage and was apparently too racy for Lady Augusta Gregory to include it in Gods and Fighting Men. I'm Stephanie Hearney. If you're wondering how explicit this is going to be, well, I think that, you know, if you saw it on the telly, you wouldn't bat an eyelid. You'll see far more explicit stuff on, you know, your Netflix or your HBOs or what have you. But we just want to be on the safe side and have you forewarned. Yes, there are sexual references in this story. But the most graphic thing is, so don't get too excited, lower your expectations here. Uh, the most graphic thing is that someone's pubic hair gets a mention. But it is raunchy. This programme will contain strong language (laughs) and scenes of a sexual nature. Uh, But anyway, (laughs) but you know how we like to delve into the comparative mythology? Well, seeing as we were sticking the explicit content label on this anyway, I thought, why not include a particular passage from Mesopotamian mythology that really couldn't have gone on the show without the label? Yeah, it's from a poem called Inanna Prefers the Farmer. So when you hear us starting to talk about that, you will know that we're getting close to Marx's reading of that poem uh, because I'm not reading it out on a podcast. Yeah, Thank you very much. It's very um, steamy, I suppose. <laughs> steamy. <laughs> it's, it's probably an understatement. You sound like, uh, I don't know, steamy is a word I associate with tabloids, like yeah. boffins. <laughs> Raunchy. Yeah, sex birds. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> anyway, getting carried um, away. Anyway, our story today comes from the saga, The Second Battle of Moitura, and it features the Dagda going on a scouting mission to get information on the invading Fomorian armies. But it's not all business for the Dagda. He has a tryst arranged with the Morrigan, an annual affair. And later in the tale, he'll be hooking up <laughs> with an unlikely lover. Yeah, this is this is the continuation of a saga that we've been telling in serial form on the podcast for quite a while. From near the start, really, if, if you include the first battle. But you can you can listen to this as a standalone if you like. I don't think you lose out on any of the meaning of this particular story. But if you haven't already and you want to catch up on the story so far, look for any episodes with Brez, Ogma, Nuda, the Dagda, Balor or Lou in the title. But for now, we present our adaptation, The Dagda's Club in Love and War. Storm clouds gather over the northwest of Ireland. The Dagda feels the foreboding of the trees and the creatures of the forest as he makes his way to meet the Morrigan. He is not afraid. He does not carry a shield, nor does he wear armour, just a sackcloth tunic that barely covers his waist and a cape of the same cloth 
that comes to the small of his back. His only weapon is the massive club that he drags along the ground, leaving a deep track in its wake. The Dagda does not need to fear, for he has a power equaled by no one. And he has allies. All of the great powers of the land have united in a holy alliance. The people of the Shi, led by himself. The Tuaday, led by Lu, and the Mnuada, and the other divine and semi-divine beings who live on, over and under the land. The mortals line up behind them, ready to fight for their very existence. They know that this coming storm, the Formorian host will kill half the population and enslave the other half. They will suck the marrow from mortal bones and suck the life force from man and God. The Dagda will do whatever it takes to stop them. This is the thought he shares with the microbial forces in the ground as he stomps over the fallen brown leaves that were put there by the trees to cushion his enormous bare feet. The beings of the microcosm share that reassuring thought with every person, plant, rock, animal and spirit that they know. The clouds part along the Dagda's route, for no, he is not afraid. He is happy, because he is not just on a mission. The Great Father mixes business with pleasure. Almost as soon as he hears the chorus of crows and the rumbling waters of Loch Arrow flowing into the Unshin River, he sees her there, washing not a stitch on her, one foot on the north bank, the other on the south. As the clouds part along his path, beams of sunlight fall on the morrigan's nine loosened locks of hair, turning them from void black to blood red. Kajimra Tatu, he says with a wink. Ta'okrasan down, Arm, she replies, looking him up and down. They lock arms around each other and fall to the ground. The earth trembles beneath their passionate embrace. Trees shake, shedding more leaves. Birds take to the air and fly south. Burrowing animals retreat into the ground for shelter. When the Dagda is spent, and the Morrigan is satisfied. They lie in each other's arms in the crater they've made, an epicentre of calm that spreads out across the land. What advice have you for me? He whispers in her ear. Gently running the tip of her finger across his chest, she draws the lines of a map and purrs. The Formor will land at Moikedna and start to march east. I will lure them here to the ford of the river. 
send for your skilled sorcerers. Have them meet me here and we will chant spells calling the Formore to their doom and decimate their forces so you will have them outnumbered when they meet you at Moitura, east of the ford. When Indech, their king, crosses, I will attack him from above. I will drain his blood and peck out his kidneys so he is weak and easy to beat when he reaches the battlefield. So much blood will be spilled that this place will be known as the Ford of Destruction. Zadagda nods and calls to one of the crows that are resting nearby. He whispers a message to the bird and sends her off to the she. With the information provided by his queen, he plots a route to Moikajana to meet the enemy when they land. The Formorians see him coming a mile off, waving his tunic and his club as a flag of truce. When they signal to acknowledge it, he puts the tunic back on and makes his way to their camp. Behind the forward camp, stretching from the coast to the horizon, a vast flotilla of ships made of fire, bones, skulls, ice and pure spirit fills the ocean. But still, the Dagda knows no fear. On the path up to the camp, a thick grove of trees constantly bloom and reproduce, filling every bit of land there is and draining the ground of its nutrients until there is nothing left to consume but each other. Flowers, shrubs and animals behave in the same way and the direct vicinity of the invading army is a strangely beautiful but grossly disturbing carnival of cannibalism. It is true, then, he thinks. This Formorian magic is a pathway to many abilities that most would consider to be unnatural. Indech Mach de Down meets the Dagda, the Ochid Olaher, with a warm smile. Ochid Olaher, it is good to see you. Have you come to surrender? He asks. The Dagda replies first with a hearty chuckle and then he says, Not at all, Indech. I'm here for your famous hospitality. Indech struggles to maintain his welcoming smile and he nods to two servants who trail behind them. They run off to prepare a feast. You won't find me wanting in that regard. I just hope you're as good a guest as I am a host. Well, it's seldom you see someone satirise themselves, the Dagda replies. There'll be no satire today, Ochu. Indech snarls in reply. Not of me, anyway. He beckons the Dagda to follow him. He leads him to a campfire, beside which his servants are filling a great big hole in the ground with a gluttonous amount of porridge made with gallons of milk with pigs and goats swimming in the oats and fat. The Dagda doesn't react to the gargantuan meal in front of him. He takes a ladle that is large enough for two humans to lie down in 
and proceeds to eat. This is good, he opines after swallowing the first ladle full. The bad bits don't spoil it. Ladle after ladle, the Dagda carefully chews, then swallows. With each ladle full, his belly expands. The sweat rolls off him, but he doesn't stop. His sackcloth tunic gets tighter and tighter and rises with his belly until, where it once barely covered his waist, his navel peers from under its hem. He runs his finger along the bottom of the hole, scraping up the last of the porridge so that there isn't a trace of it left. And then he falls asleep in the crater, his belly as big as a cauldron. For the next few hours, while the Dagda sleeps, the Formorians take turns pointing and laughing at his uncouth appearance. When he wakes, he promptly climbs out of the hole and lumbers away from the Formorian camp, ripples of laughter following him as he passes through the cannibalistic vines and branches of the hyperactive Formorian jungle, feet dragging along the perched dirt forest floor. Leaving the Formorians and their unnatural vegetation behind, he makes his way to Trey Eva. It is not easy for him to walk on account of the size of his belly and his appearance is rather unsightly. His tunic just covering as far as the swelling of his rump and his cape falling no further than his elbow. He pulls a wheeled fork behind him that he took from the enemy camp which would require the effort of eight strong mortals to pull. The track of this device carves a huge ditch as he goes. As he gets close to his destination, he sees an attractive young woman in front of him. He admires her shapely figure and the beautiful curly locks of golden hair that brush off the shoulder straps of her knee-length white dress. He is filled with desire, but there is no life in his long uncovered Mickey on account of the fullness of his belly. The young woman points and laughs at his flaccid manhood. Ha! You impotent old fool, she howls. Without warning, she jumps on him and wrestles him to the ground. A crater forms around the dogta where he falls. He looks up at her angrily and asks, What business did you have heaving me out of the way like that? To get you to carry me on your back to my father's camp, she replies. And who is your father? The Dagda inquires. Indach macht de king of the Fomor, she answers before she leaps down upon him and pounds his stomach so hard that the crater he is lying in fills up around him with his own excrement. Look at you there, lying in your own shit, she cackles. Like a pig in a sty with a dose of the runs, she snorts. The great horseman himself, not even a horse would tolerate that. Get up and put me on your back, she roars. The Dagda looks up at her, 
unmoved by the torrent of abuse or even the filth he lies in. I could carry you, of course, but it is a gesh for anyone to go on my back who does not call me by my real name, he advises. What is your name, then? she asks. Fur Ben, the dagda replies. Ha! That name is too much. Get up then, Fur Ben, and carry me on your back, demands the young woman. Hold on now. That's not the whole of it, he tells her. Well, go on then. What is your real name? She demands. Fur Ben Bruch, says the dagda. Get up and carry me on your back, Fur Ben Bruch, she orders him. Wait, he continues. That's still not at all before he tells her the rest. Get up and carry me on your back, fur ben bruch, brogel, bromedia, carbid, cach, rolig, bulk, lara, kercha, de brig, olaher, bois, em, mel, bretra, tree, carbid, ro, rimra, reel, scopta, ota, olive, she proclaims. The dagda rises from the pit, emptying what is left in his bowels as he does, filling the hole to the brim. The young Formorian woman hops up on his back and he carries her south as fast as he can go. When they reach Beltra Strand, she slaps him hard on the arse. The Dagda falls on his back, no longer impotent, and the young woman straddles him, hoisting up the hem of her skirt, revealing her curly pubic hair. The earth trembles under the force of their coupling, the quake ripples out to sea, creating tidal waves that capsize several Fomorian boats and cause the others to drop anchor. When he is spent and she is satisfied, they lie together in the crater they have made. You will not go to the battle by any means, she whispers in his ear. Certainly I will go. He replies. You will not go, she warns him, because I will be a stone at the mouth of every ford that you will cross. That may be true, he answers, but you will not keep me from it. I will tread heavily on every stone and the trace of my heel will remain on every stone forever. True enough, she nods, but they will be turned over so that you may not see them. You will not go past me until I summon the sons of Terra from the She Mounds, because I will be a giant oak in every ford and in every pass you will cross. I will indeed go past, says the Dagda, and the mark of my axe will remain in every oak forever. She pauses in thought for a moment before saying, Allow the Formor to enter the land because the men of Ireland have all come together in one place. I will be a hindrance to the Formor. I will sing spells against them and I alone will take on a ninth part of the host. The Dagda agrees to these terms and they bid farewell, agreeing to meet again.
after the battle. Who are, as they say on the telly, I sounded like somebody from the West Country in England there, having a cider. Anyway. Who says that on the telly these days? What? In the year of our Lord, 2022. I don't know. Who are? I suppose Victoria would, but she's no longer with us. (laughs) (laughs) Reruns. Yeah, so, yeah, I'm going back a while. It's, 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 you know, I don't really watch the telly much other than like, specific shows on Disney Plus and Netflix. Um, but anyway, <laughs> the doctor got around in that story, didn't he? He did. He's some buckle. He, he got a lot done overall. Yep, a lot done, more to do, as a man we won't mention was once said. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, so we mentioned that this is from the saga, the Second Battle of Maitura. The oldest version of the text is found in a 16th century manuscript simply titled uh, Harleen MS 5280, which is held in the British Library in London. Give it back, you thieves. <laughs> thieves be and gone. It, and everything else, Elgin marbles and all that. Why is it all in London? It's absolutely mad, isn't it? I remember going to the British Museum years ago and just looking and thinking, this is just a gallery of thievery. Yeah. It's wild. And um, another city I really love is Vienna, but I have to say it's very much the same thing if you go into the museums in Vienna. It's all stuff robbed from Egypt and Greece and everything. Anyway, that's the manuscript it's from. And (laughs) (laughs) after that um, tangent... Uh, but we primarily looked at Elizabeth Gray's 1982 translation of this text. Now, if you look at the version on University College Cork's Corpus of Electronic Texts with the hyperlinks to individual sections, which we'll link in the show notes, you will find most of the source material for our adaptation from section 84 to section 93. Most of it, that is. Yes, for reasons unknown... Whoever put together this incredibly valuable resource left out an entire page. And we're talking about the whole sequence in which the Dagda and Index daughter fight and then flirt and then kind of hook up before agreeing to some things that are really, really important to the overall story. It could, of course, just be an omission by error, though there is an editorial declaration that says text has been proofread twice. I mean, maybe go for a third one. But... (laughs) The section definitely is in Gray's translation, and stranger still, it is in the version on the Corpus of Electronic Text site that is presented as a single file without links to individual sections, which we'll also link. If this was the only instance of this section being left out of the saga, it would hardly bear mentioning. However, it has been omitted on several occasions in several editions, translations and adaptations. In Whitley Stokes 1891 translation for uh, Review Celtique, when he gets to the part where the Dagda is pulling the forked wheel behind him, the story stops abruptly with the explanation and there's, you know, brackets, gap, where it says gap, meaning of text, unclear uh, slash extant, a few lines. And then he skips the rest of this section entirely. It also, as we mentioned at at the top of the show, proved too much for Lady Augusta Gregory to include in her famous collection, Gods and Fighting Men. And it was also too much for a compiler of an early modern Irish version whose name escapes me. But what was it about this story that caused authors and translators to self-censor? Was it the sex? Was it the graphic description of the Dagda's bodily functions? 
was it the fact that he took a beating off a woman? Porcano les tres, I suppose. <laughs> That's great pronunciation there. Um, whatever the reason, these omissions really robbed the Dagda of an essential component of his greatness. His willing to get his hands and the rest of his body dirty. He is equally at home, sleeping in, eating out of, defecating in, and having the ride in dirty holes in the ground, as he is hanging out in the halls of the gods. He is more than willing to show off his bits, if it's necessary, and he has sort of a rustic charm that is appealing both to the very, very selective Morgan and the daughter of his enemy. There's there's a, a village um, near... Caceres and Estremadura where they pronounce Trez like that. Oh my god. <laughs> I know that 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 I'm gonna have to explain that joke. <laughs> Go on. Is this is this this is based on any time there's like someone makes a mistake in Irish, they'll go, Oh well there's this road in Gleninia where they say it like that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> anyway, go on. Now the whole passage really shows off the Dagda's Tao or his Zen. So remember when we covered the wooing of Tain, we mentioned the Taoist concept of Wu Wei, which loosely translated means effortless action, or as we might say in Hiberno English, Asher will be grand. Well, in this story, through the Dagda, we see um, through him accepting the passive aggressive hospitality of the Fomorians, not fighting back, even if he could against Index Daughter just emptying his bowels as if it's nothing and this effortless flirtation. Well, then we see in that Wu Wei effortlessly in action, so to speak. He's in right relation with the world around him. And this gives him the confidence that things will just go his way if he maintains his patience and calm demeanour. And they do. Yeah, not only does he end up having a very good time twice, uh, both his lovers agree to assist him in the fight against the Fomorians. So he obviously did somewhat of a decent job. Uh, there's, um, Does anybody do that anymore? No. You need to update your references, please. Like, younger audiences just won't get it, you know, uh, including me. So... <laughs> All right there, Mindy Kaling. <laughs> um, there's, there's something, anyway, back to this. Uh, there's something very mindful about the way he goes about his business. He always seems to be mentally and spiritually right where he is physically. So just before we go on and talk about our adaptation of this story, if you are of a mind to compare our version and the Elizabeth Gray and Whitley Stokes translations or any other version, we'll have a story-only audio along with the text over on our Patreon. I was just thinking we should have got the rights to um, its business time from Flight of the Concords. Flight of the Concords, Like, that sure, that's... I was watching Flight of the Concords when I was in school. Like, that's a thousand years ago, Mark. Ah, uh, probably people still watch it. It's one of those cult classics. I don't know. Anyway, go on. Oh yeah, that um, story-only audio and story script will be available for patrons on all tiers. So you can actually get that content from just three euro a month. But um, back to the story. And what we, not so much has changed, I suppose, as added or extrapolated. The first part where the Dagda goes to see the Morrigan is the most heavily adapted, as that part in the manuscript is fairly light on detail. Um, the source material is, as we've spoken about on the show before, medieval in origin. So 
even down written down outside of the polytheist context that the original stories it was based on were um, told in. And as such, I was there trying to conjure the animism in it. And so all of that stuff about communicating with the trees and the microbes is part of our interpretation. I think people in pre-Christian times and medieval times, actually even up to quite recently in the grand scheme of things, would just get the metaphor in the tale because it was the way they saw the world. And even if they didn't see the gods as like gods anymore, they saw land spirits, the fair folk and, and other supernatural beings in the landscape. And it's sadly something the overall culture has lost in the post-industrial world. So you kind of have to draw that meaning out of it. You know, I think even when I when I was growing up, you know, from people like Minana and her generation would have been told, you know, you don't go into that field over there. That one has a stray sod and things like that. You know, there's, there was still all of that going. But sure, didn't they, didn't they divert part of the M1? What road was it that was built in a different, where they built around something that was a fairy fort? I mean, that would have been quite common years ago that you would have had you know, people building, developers even, and, and farmers and stuff would kind of go to build on the land, but then there'd be a part that they wouldn't build on because it was said that there was like a fairy ring or a fairy fort now. But I think that kind of thing is sort of disappearing. Well, there there is actually an estate <coughs> in, in Navan that was built in probably the early 2000s, let's say, that has a fairy ring, it's a ring of trees in the field, and that hasn't, hasn't been touched. I've I've noticed that, that it's still there. They, so they built the estate around it. That was actually known as the murder tree in our house. And maybe that's a story I'll tell another time because I've seen several different versions of the story. On Patreon the only content. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Sign up. Um, I just, I winked. <laughs> there you go. You can just imagine that. But anyway, yeah. And I've I also just finished reading Gordon White's new book on animism, Annie Mystic and... That book was very much there with me when I was thinking about this story. You know, it's, I'd highly recommend it to anybody that's interested in that kind of thing. But another addition actually was the Fomorian Forest, um, that hyperactive vegetarian... Vegetarian? <laughs> <laughs> I was a hyperactive vegetarian yeah. for, for most of my 20s, actually. The, the hyperactive vegetation, consuming all around. But it was... Um, based on an idea from a later part of the saga that the Fomorians have some sort of knowledge that allows them to bypass seasonal barriers to growing crops. And I suppose the eagle-eared among you will have noticed the ubiquitous Star Wars reference, the bit about the Fomorian magic being a pathway to many abilities considered unnatural, which is, of course, a tribute to um, old Sheev Palpatine's Dark Plagueis the Wise speech in Revenge of the Sith. Some would consider unnatural. Oh my gosh. Shout out to the five people listening to this who will who five will get that. Prequel fandom is huge on the internet. It's a whole new world out there. Life comes at you fast. Uh but anyway, from that point on, the manuscript version has much more detail. So the interpretation in it is mainly description or a couple of extra lines of dialogue. For example, where Index Daughter is throwing insults at him, the text only says she satirised him three times, which brings us back around to talking about the Dagda and his dalliances and his sort of general way of being in the world. 
We briefly referenced today's story back in episode 17 when we talked about Alaha's seduction of Eru. Now, Alaha is a Fomorian prince and the father of Brez. When he seduces Brez's mother, Eru, he is dressed in the finest garments and covered in gold jewellery. A bit like myself on a night out. Um, he lays on the charm pretty thick and when Eru isn't sure about the tryst, he moves to persuasion and persistence. The Dagda, on the other hand, has a much more natural way about him when it comes to sex and love. Now, Mark Williams draws this comparison in his book, Ireland's Immortals, A History of the Gods of Irish Myth. And he writes, The difference between the god peoples and the Fomorian invaders is expressed through opposed representations of the body. When the Dagda couples with the daughter of the Fomorian king, the aesthetics of the previous coupling, and that's the Eru Alata one, are reversed. And he points out that the consequences of Alaha and Eru's, Eru's tryst prove disastrous for the two a day because it leads to Brez, who's a terrible king, uh, while the Dagda's dalliance with Index Daughter is highly beneficial. Now, I see what he's saying, but I would add that there isn't just a contrast between the two a day and the former here. There's also one between the Dagda and Lou. Lou is not unlike Brez in the sense that he is beautiful, he has golden hair, he's always looking his best. And he is equally skilled in all the arts, but he's also a bit boastful in that respect. Now, the Dagda is also skilled in all these arts, but literally never says this out loud. We just know it because for him, the telling is in the doing and we get to see him at work especially in this passage that has been unceremoniously dumped by multiple authors. Yeah, it's not unusual to see the Dagda's uncouth appearance and unrefined behaviour interpreted as the point of view of Christian authors who were really set on lampooning him. If that is the case, they don't do a particularly good job because he comes away from this episode having achieved everything he set out to do and more. In fact, this is a key victory without which the two-a-day probably won't prevail at the Battle of Moitura. So when you look at the story with a sort of animist lens, you see how his sexual encounters and his bowel movements fit perfectly with uh, his role with regards to fertility. Both of his sexual partners represent something about the land here. Um, his first being the Morrigan, representing a lot more than that. But her position washing over the river Unshin makes her fulfil the role of a land spirit here, as does Index's daughter, who later blocks his way. He first negotiates with the land, then he couples with it to bring fertility. And when that ceremony, so to speak, is complete, he has the cooperation of the land and its guardian spirits. And of course, when he defecates, he is also fertilising the land with his own manure, which brings us, I was going to say neatly, but maybe messily, to the Dagda's names in the story. Fairbenbrook, Broel, Brumide, Kervid, Kak, Rolig, Bulk, Lauer, Serke, Debrig, Olaher, Bo, Anton, Mehe, Brihra, Tricarod, Rivra, Rig, Sko, Olaha. What's it mean? Well, hot coffee in a proper copper coffee pot. <laughs> Is that it? I don't listen. When I so when I was recording the story, 
eagle-eared listeners will recognise that I 100% did not pronounce those <laughs> those names in the same way that Mark did for some of them. Marcus I, I, would have a much better well, pronunciation. Well, in fairness, sometimes I just... I just make an educated guess and assume the shavu in certain places. Where, what was I going to say? Something about, oh yeah, uh, I know. We're going to ask what it all means. <clears throat> what it all means. Yeah, well look, there were a lot of interpretations of the meaning of this passage out there. And we've mainly looked at two sources. Uh, the aforementioned Ireland's Immortals by Mark Williams. And there's a very thorough analysis in Isolde O'Brolochon Carmody's essay, Man of Peaks and Edges, The Names of the Dagda, which you can find in the anthology of writing on the Dagda, um, Harp, Club and Cauldron, edited by Laura O'Brien and Morpheus Ravena. Isolde uh, O'Brolachon Carmody points out that this is what we call a Rosk name. Now, a Rosk is a type of early Irish poetry that employs alliterative verse. And we'll talk about that a bit more in future episodes, but just bear that in mind. So Mark Williams gives a partial possible explanation for the name, speculating that Furben either means man of mountains or man of prongs. Um, Debrig or Debris. Uh, might mean god of power, rulluk, bulk, uh, warrior of the belly, brook, the paunched, kak. He pro- proposes means shit. Kak, kak is the, you know, we would say kak for that nowadays. Um, bu, being, akin mehe, uh, rebirth of the world, and of course, alahar, um, supreme father. Just on the old Irish translation though, about pronunciation, like, I believe that Old Irish translation, if you were looking for something that was closer to it in modern days, it was closer to um, Scots Gaelic in pronunciation. It has a lot of that, those guttural cock sounds. Oh, that sounded more like Klingon. Sorry, apologies to um, Scots Gaelic listeners. So, Abrilacan Carmody, on the other hand, goes through each word and gives multiple possible meanings for most of them. And from that, you could reconstruct several possible meanings for the entire Rusk name. One would be man of peaks and mountains, of banks and edges, great armful, fartiness, cutting each and every large oak tree, uh, berries, boastful hen, because of the great father's being, the world is reborn by means of a chariot wheel, counting as the speech of a king, warm waters of a great ebb tide. Another, you could extrapolate maybe, would be big-bellied man of horns, lap full of farts, cutting all, a sound of bagpipes, a noisy stringed instrument from the hill of the hut, restitution of the land, three-wheeled chariot, enumerating judgments, sheltered river beyond ebb tides. And you could mix up the two several ways or include some other interpretations of the word. Or, as we have said many times, they could hold all of these meanings at the same time or change meaning depending on the situation that the Dagda is in or the person uh, who is invoking the Dagda. I also just thought there that there's something in it that reminds me of the song of um, Avergan. You know, that naming things on the land that you are, that you become, that you've become part of. And that's actually... What song is this? No, the song of Avergan. Oh, right. You know, the... From the coming of the Malaysians, yeah, uh, something we'll actually be covering later this year, which I'm really looking forward to. It's one of my favorite pieces, just that actual poem. 
Um, but Mark Williams interprets the passage where the Dagda tells Index Daughter of the Gesh and the correct way to say his name to get him to carry her as stalling for time. Now, I, th- I think this interpretation suffers from thinking about ancient literature within the framework of modern materialist thinking. If we recall that this is a Rusk name, and we try and think about the name here with the mindset of the people who employed the Rusk technique, we become aware that the Rusk was a type of verse that had many roles, one of which was to cast magic spells. Now, two things come to my mind when I think about it this way. One is that when you are calling on divine or demonic beings, now listen very carefully if you're planning on doing any um, sort of um, magical spells or anything like that now, sorcery. But if you're calling on divine or demonic beings for assistance with your magic, you need to use a very specific combination of their names in the conjuring. And if you don't do this correctly, the spell either just won't work or it could backfire on you. So in Irish terms, this would actually constitute a gesh, like a taboo or a sort of a curse. Now, the second thing is that in cultures that Westerners classify as having animist beliefs, and it's important to point out that animist is a Western term applied to cultures that practice certain ways of life. In these cultures, if you're communicating with a plant or animal or spirit being, it's often the case that it's forbidden to actually use the human name for these beings, lest the human thinking confused and non-human and disrupt the communication. So I think what we actually have in this passage is a form of instruction on how to summon or call for help from the Dagda. Perhaps with help in specific areas, maybe it's sexual prowess, safety on a journey, um, fertility, introducing yourself to the land that you've just arrived in, or even relief from constipation. Maybe it's one of all of these things. You know, in Aboriginal culture, they have this thing where you have to basically ask country for permission to basically be there. You know, it could be like something like that, you know. That's really interesting. Also, I mean, I think that kind of interpretation about like stalling for time and even putting that on on the table as a reasonable interpretation is kind of mad in a universe where you know, various characters would regularly kind of move through time. Like, I feel like a character like the Dagda, if it was to stall for time, like, that's not, like, just kind of, like, doing something that's pretty basic, actually. Yeah. You know, as kind of getting down and dirty with someone as, like, this, yeah, it just, it wouldn't happen. Like, there'd be something. So time for him is, like, putting the kettle on for me, like, you know. Well, you know, sometimes when I ask you to put the kettle on, time does slow down. So, you know, here we are. (laughs) Um, But anyway, something else we might consider is that Moiru, we talked about way back in episode six, used Rusk poetry to cast magic spells. And in some of those, he calls upon the god of druids, who is undoubtedly the Dagda. So when we think of a god of sorcery, who at the same time is devoid of notions, uh, who is always walking in step with the wider world in which he exists, this idea of the name as a means of situationally summoning makes an awful lot of sense. Now, another episode you might cast your mind back to is the one where we talked a lot about the Morrigan, which was episode four, Maids of Mayhem. In that episode, we did a bit of comparative mythology and discussed the similarities between the ancient Mesopotamian goddess Inanna and the Morrigan. 
Now, Inanna, like the Morrigan, is associated with sex, death, choosing the fate of warriors, bringing about, bringing about societal change, fertility, and is actually the most important goddess in her field. She also employs divine bulls to initiate conflict. Inanna marries a god called uh, Demuzid, who is associated with shepherds. Now, this is an interesting parallel with the Dagda, who is associated with herding cattle. There are two very rude passages in an ancient Mesopotamian poem called Inanna Prefers the Farmer. Alert, alert for small children around. Uh, which Marcus has been given the task of reading here. Yeah, I, th- I think they are, it is Im- important to include these because like the raunchy passages in our story today, they hold the metaphor for the fertility of the land within the sexual relations of divine beings. Now, these are very graphic, so be warned. And this is the first one. And actually, I will add that... Um, so Can't wait for you to read this, sorry. Inanna <laughs> has a choice to make between the farmer, whose name I actually forget, and the muzid, uh, who's, who's, the, who's the shepherd. No, it's, it's something beginning with an E... But this is, but <laughs> Wasn't like seriously suggesting that <laughs> Inanna's farmer was called Pat. <laughs> but th- this first passage th- is actually a conversation she's having. And it's actually a conversation she- she's having with her brother. Bear that in mind when I read this. It would have been a prime opportunity for a Game of Thrones <laughs> reference. More sort of up to date. But anyway. My vulva, the horn, the boat of heaven, is full of eagerness like the young moon. My untilled land lies fallow. As for me, Inanna, who will plough my vulva? Who will plough my high field? Who will plough my wet ground? As for me, the young woman, who will plough my vulva? Who will station the ox there? Who will plough my vulva? Yeah, so that's that's, that's the first one. <laughs> I loved every second of that. <laughs> Go on. I know, the second one is... You got really into it too. The second one is later when she's made up her mind and she's with the Moosed and um, this is like... Brace yourselves, yeah. lads. Her to him, so to speak. As the actress said to the bishop, as <laughs> he used to say. And that's why that's a before my time reference. So, um, Make your milk sweet and thick, my bridegroom. My shepherd, I will drink your fresh milk. Wild bull, Demusi, make your milk sweet and thick. I will drink your fresh milk. Let the milk of the goat flow in my sheepfold. Fill my holy churn with honey cheese. Lord Demusi, I will drink your fresh milk. <laughs> oh, you were. Uh, <laughs> you know, somebody still says it. <laughs> I said that for you. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's a bit Cardi B, uh, which I, I love Cardi B, but yeah, that is like Cardi B of ye olde times doesn't really leave a lot to the imagination at all. And to be fair, when we talked about including this, <laughs> these passages, I said that I wasn't reading them. And that alternatively, what I would be willing to do would be to set up an Irish mythology podcast only fans <laughs> where I would read smut for the listeners. So if that's a thing you're interested in, you know, let us know. 
Uh, we're not, I'm not, I'm not, you know, opposed <laughs> to producing that content if people are willing to pay for it. But otherwise, Mark will read it for free. <laughs> but so, yeah. show me that shmoney, as Cardi B would say, you know. But maybe, maybe um, I'll, I'll also do a ASMR version. Ah, I'm, I'm a person. <laughs> I'm, I'm not into that at all. It makes it makes my ears. I'm a big fan. It makes my ears go funny. Um, anyway. Yeah, maybe, maybe, and maybe you want a, an OnlyFans of Mark doing <laughs> ASMR versions of this. I don't know, but uh, let, let us know. Uh, you can see, to come back to the actual point of including this in the first place, the land fertility metaphor. Once, I suppose, you get over the shock of how explicit it is. And like, you have to remember, this poem is about 4,000 years old. Yeah, and suppose it's typical human behaviour. You know, when we come up with a new technology for conveying information, the first thing we do is come up with ways of using it for porn. You know, like the internet porn, moving pictures porn, photography porn, oil painting porn, illustrated pottery porn, and in this case, writing on clay tablets porn. Although the likelihood is that these X-rated works of religious poetry were part of the general popular culture, which I suppose speaks kind of to how prudish we've become in the 4,000 years since then. Although, have we become more prudish? No, hold on. I don't really agree at that point. Well, you wouldn't have that, like, in your religious texts, like... No, I suppose not. I mean... But I suppose... I don't know would there necessarily have been, like, a distinction. Like, weren't most texts then sort of religious? Yeah, I mean, you kind can... of. But, I mean, compared to them... I think, you know, everything like sex and stuff like that is on in a cordoned off. We have, you know, we're putting an explicit content warning on this episode, you know, for 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 just, just the stuff in the story, which isn't really that, you know, explicit. Um, I suppose nowadays, you know, with just the, the proliferation of porn everywhere on the Internet, you know, it's it's probably switching, but. I think we grew up in a world where that was a lot more prudish than um, ancient Mesopotamia. I mean, they were out there on their own. And e even the ancient Greeks thought they were kind of a bit on the pervy side. And I'm sure we've all seen... What... <laughs> I love how you're like, even the Greeks yeah, well, thought sure that they all... were a bit deviant. I I'm sure we've all seen ancient Greek pottery, like, you know, in sculpture. They were like, that didn't leave much to the imagination. And they thought the Babylonians and Mesopotamians were a bit much, you know. Now, <laughs> I've read um, accounts, Greek accounts now. These could be propaganda-like, you know, but you wouldn't know. From reading the mythology, um, you know, I wouldn't put it past them. But the, in the Greek accounts of Mesopotamia and Babylon, the basically people were just, like, at it out in the street, you know, like... My like, word. Like dogs. Jesus. Yeah. And what do you reckon, Propaganda. I say it was it was probably more the case that there was like great big areas that were effectively brothels like you know because you know the Babylonians were famous for sex work and things like that you know right interesting hmm. yeah um another interesting parallel is between the Muzid and the Dagda uh, where they are both boundary crossing gods and they cross physical boundaries as well as the boundaries between the physical and spiritual realms. Uh, Demuzid is said to spend half of the year living in the heavens and the other half in the underworld. 
And that kind of brings us around to another bit of comparative mythology vis-a-vis the Dagda, which we have talked about before. But there's always a bit more to say. And that's the whole Hermes, uh, Mercury class of God can of worms. Now, the usual caveat here, this class of God is considered a class of God because it was thought up by the Romans as a way of integrating the ways and beliefs of conquered people into Roman society. So it's immediately problematic. But it is also the case that there are similarities between gods in different ethno-cultural contexts. The Romans looked at these similarities and weaponized them by saying, these are the same gods. That's not exactly the way I think of it. It's, it's, it's more like these gods are related. And when humans spread out across the world, they brought their culture and spirituality with them but they encountered different environmental settings in which their existing ways didn't work exactly as they had where they came from. So when this cultural genome meets a new environment or a new nature, new gods come into being. Now, these beings that constituted the gods were already there because they are, after all, eternal. But the newness comes from the way humans relate to them. So the Dagda is not Hermes or Mercury, or Pan, or Odin, or Dumuzid, or Toth, but he is, in my opinion, related to them culturally, while being distinct in terms of place and nature. Now, to use a clumsy materialist metaphor, it's like if a scientist, Boffin, uh, <laughs> sampled my DNA, and from that created five clones, and one is born in Iraq, one is born in China, one is born in Peru, one is born in Australia, and one is born in Kenya. Biologically, these clones would be identical to me, but coming into being and growing in completely different environmental circumstances, they would be different people. Now, if we step out of the materialism in the metaphor and mix in a bit of animism, you see that what constitutes the person is not just their biological nature, but their biological nature plus the natural, spiritual and cultural milieu they exist in along with all of their interactions with other humans, animals, plants, the dead, the gods, the food they eat, the bacteria that make their home in their bodies, etc. And so on and so forth. Do you think if there were five of ye, one of would run the hoover around? <laughs> like, would you draw straws? <laughs> Um, if you want a more in-depth discussion on the Dagda, possibly uh, as possibly part of the Hermes Mercury class of God, you can listen to that on episodes 10, 11 and 13 and on our Patreon bonus episode, How the Dagda Got His Magic Staff. So many great euphemisms. <laughs> uh, but just to summarise... Most of these gods tend to have some of the following associations. Uh, Herding, sorcery, setting and crossing boundaries, movement between the underworld and the heavens, hospitality, protection and fertility. Now, there are people who claim Lu as the Irish god of this class and some of them make a good case. We've talked about that in those episodes I mentioned just now and the ones on Lu. And what we've been saying is, there is no reason for there to be only one of these gods. Uh, following on from that model, the clone thing I presented above, various groups during different migrations would have initially brought their own gods. Lu is very clearly an Irish version of the continental Celtic god Lugus. 
In fact, he was called Lucas when he arrived here. It's on Ohm inscriptions. Now, we've discussed evidence in the episodes on Lou and in a recent Patreon bonus episode about the legend of Tuol Tecmer, uh, which is on our Patreon page, that he probably arrived in the early centuries CE, while the Dagda was probably here from at least 700 BC and possibly longer than that, I think longer. Um, with absolutely nothing to back that up. <laughs> I was but, just about to yeah, say. But that's, just, that's just my, <laughs> other than my, you know, my feeling, my gut feeling. Oh, sure, listen, people have made whole my careers personal, out of less, so. My personal relationship with our Lord and Saviour, the Dagda. <laughs> but, um, like, he, he could have his roots in a pre-Indo-European deity or a pre-Celtic proto-Indo-European migration um, or ha- he might have roots going back to the Neolithic, because there's a lot of mythology around the Dagda that's... I know this could have come in later as a way of integrating the landscape into the mythology that people brought, but there's a lot of mythology surrounding the Dagda that surrounds, like, Neolithic monuments, like Newgrange. Um, or, you know... We, he could have been brought in and integrated into an existing mythology that was here, you know. But in this respect, he resembles a god who once held the epithet Hermes, but later became a separate god to Hermes. And this is the Greek deity who himself may have had his roots in an early proto-Indo-European religion or maybe even non-Indo-European religion because he does, in fact, share a lot of attributes with Dumasid and Toth, uh, the former coming from people speaking Semitic languages and the latter from an Afro-Asiatic uh, language family, ancient Egyptian. The god in question is Pan, and the scholarly consensus seems to be that Pan once occupied the Hermes role in rural Greece and that he predates the gods of Olympus. In his role as a guardian of boundaries and having the ability to cross boundaries, he was once known as Hermes Pan. The name Hermes is derived from the ancient Greek for the stone heaps that were used to mark boundaries. Now, at some point, the two gods were separated and while both retained a role relating to herds and livestock, Hermes took over the role of marking, guarding and crossing boundaries and safeguarding people on journeys. And Pan retained his dominion over mountains and like the wilderness. So if we look at the Dagda in all of his aspects, there is a striking similarity with the original Pan, Hermes Pan, uh, which to me is further evidence of the Dagda's antiquity. And now I'm not 100% convinced even that the continental Celtic god Lugus was actually the one that Caesar dubbed the Celtic Mercury. Um, and we'll you know, probably return to that before we finish with the second battle of Moitura. But regardless, to me it's very clear that the Dagda satisfies a great many of the roles that would place him in that class of god. But he's also much more than that. And you know, I was thinking that he kind of typifies the idea of or Mark, Karen Marx's idea of you know unalienated labor where work and play just are seem seamlessly blend into each other you know there's no distinction what is it I'm a writer in the more what is that yeah. hunter and after what is that quote oh. um oh yes you know what a hunter in the afternoon critic in the evening critic in the evening without having a mind to hold on I should know this off by heart at this stage 
society regulates the general production and thus makes it possible for me to do one thing today and another tomorrow, to hunt in the morning, fish in the afternoon, rear cattle in the evening, criticise after dinner, just as I have a mind without ever becoming hunter, fisherman, herdsman or critic. That's the quote. <laughs> and that's a man who's clearly never reared cattle in his life because they're the thing you'd have to be up at four in the morning for like to... Marx didn't do like a whole lot other than well not to do a whole lot but like you know sat around writing things and sending letters to Engels saying here I've this really really important idea to write down it's going to take me another nine months to do will you send me another wedge of cash please and Engels is like oh pal you're writing whopper here have loads of money like that's and then he goes on the terror with Wilhelm Leibniz yeah that's yeah, listen. Anyway. <laughs> Get sidetracked here. Returning to, to, to Dao and the concept of Wu Wei, we can also say that the Dagda exemplifies these qualities. The Dao is the way that cannot be named. It's a way of being that can only be lived, never fully described. Within Taoist literature is the concept of the sage, and the sage is one who lives the Dao, who is in perfect harmony with everything in their life. Sometimes the sage attains great magical power because of their just seamless way of being in the world. And we can look at the Dagda in this way. He's a perfect role model for how to be in the world. A god, yes, but unlike many others, despite being the greatest of them all, a god we can aspire to emulate. And if we achieve that, we can truly say, ah, sure, it'll be grand. And that's why for me, he's, n- he's number one. <laughs> Oh, what a, I love that. That was a lovely, uh, oh, thank you. lovely little bit you did there. Um, yeah, how do I follow up with that? Well, I, that's only going to talk a bit about place lore. Um, but we're running out of time, so we'll be brief. Um, and if you want a bit more of that in our patrons' show notes, we'll go into it in a bit more detail. And we and we might even actually do a whole episode on the place lore in the saga of the Second Battle of Maitura because there is a huge amount of it. The story is entirely set within modern day County Sligo and the encounter between the Dagda and the Morrigan takes place where the Unshan River flows out of Loch Arrow. Nearby, you'll find Carrowkeel Passage Tombs, a Neolithic monument that's similar enough to Newgrange and Nouth and Douth, etc. in, in Meath. And Curran uh, G at Carrowkeel has a summer solstice alignment. Uh, kind of mirroring Newgrange's winter solstice alignment. And interestingly, actually, when they were doing excavations, the, the latter day, you know, because it was mostly cremations, but later on, they just interred bones for some reason in them. And there was close familial relations between people um, who were interred at Carrow Keel and people who were in, interred at Newgrange and Mead. Interesting. Yeah. As we were saying, that is all we have time for. But if you've been enjoying this, the show so far, you might consider becoming a patron. The Irish Mythology Podcast will always be free to listen to on the usual platforms, but it is not free to make. Your financial support can help us keep making it and continue to invest in things like additional recording equipment, books for research, or now that COVID restrictions are gone, maybe travelling around to some of the locations mentioned in the story and bringing you more content from there. Um, Want to be Whopper subscriptions at this point with the, with the cost of uh, petrol and everything. I was going uh, to say, the NCT is juice. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus, but also, big plans. Yeah. <laughs> but also, as Steffi said, maybe soundproofing so we're not interrupted by dogs and seagulls. And there's there's a range of 
um, kind of bonus content at different price tiers and from just three euro a month you can get access to each episode as soon as it's recorded so a little bit before we put it online story scripts enhanced show notes and the story only audio and then from five euro a month you can get access to more kind of bonus episodes like the tool tactmar one i talked about earlier or how the dagda got his magic staff so go and have a look uh, at patreon.com forward slash irish mythology podcast do you know actually sorry before we do the like and you can find us on twitter blah 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 right i just want to can before i do that can we just take a second to acknowledge how absolutely mental that story is like okay because i mean we can't because like i mean we've we've gone into it and we've gone into the seriousness of the fertility and you know that he's for you know fertilizing the land with his own manure and all of that right but like this is a story about a god who's a giant who goes you know he's given it the big i am he heads up to these boys and he's like i'm going to test your hospitality now and they give him so much food that his stomach is absolutely huge and he's in bits. And then he lies down in the ground, basically, and shites himself. (laughs) And he's there in a pool of it. And then this mot arrives, climbs up on him and is like, carry me to wherever. Then they have the ride. Then he goes off and he, he's had the, has he had the ride? No, he's had the ride. Yeah, yeah. And then he and he goes off and he and he and he does the ride or something like that. Is a mad story. It is. Like, and I just think it's important to acknowledge that that is absolutely bonkers. You know. It is, but it does sound like he was having a great day. Overall. He does. <laughs> he does. Anyway, I suppose. Look, after that, you can find us on Twitter at Irish Mythology P on Facebook. Uh, Irish Mythology Podcast on Instagram at Irish Mythology and online at irishmythologypodcast.ie Not on OnlyFans yet but who knows if the demand is there maybe we will uh, read some ancient smut for cash and if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or another platform that includes ratings and you like the show do us a favour and give us a five star rating it really helps us reach a wider audience and you know if you go to someone's house seeking hospitality I just be careful, I suppose, <laughs> is the is today's lesson from the show. Yeah. Uh Slaw and Live, we'll see you next time in Irish Mythology Podcast. You have been listening to the Irish Mythology Podcast. Written, presented, and produced by Marcus O'Hishkeen and Stephanie Hearney. Theme music by Damiano Baldoni, Celtic Warrior, on an attribution license. Which is loosely translated as effortless action. Um, 